The views, comments, and opinions of the following program do not necessarily reflect those of Morris Media Studios, MorrisMediaLive.com, or its affiliates. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good morning, greetings, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are joining us from. Welcome to Faith Without Borders. I'm your host, Pastor Calvin Sauls. It is indeed a joy for me, beloved, to uh, have you with me this day. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we have no choice but to rejoice. Despite all the challenges we're going through, um, our rejoicing uh, is part of our connection uh, with the divine, our creator. Uh, and so that uh, joy uh, that uh, God, the divine, has given you, the world didn't give it to you, and the world, sure enough, can't take it away from you. And so it is with those words that I greet you, beloved, and welcome you uh, this day to Faith Without Borders. Uh, as you know, here at Faith Without Borders, our mission is to engage in the education and mobilization of multiracial and multireligious transnational movements for social equity and planetary justice locally. Uh, that means uh, locally here in Los Angeles, uh, uh, regionally in California, nationally in the United States, and globally around the world in general, but in particularly uh, for me, uh, South, uh, Southern Africa. Uh, so it is a joy for me to have you uh, here. Today we're going to uh, check in on a very, very 
uh, critical and important health you know, uh, issue that we need to be aware of. We know that health has been at the forefront because of the pandemic that we are experiencing and how it has revealed uh, health inequities and uh, continue to um, show us the uh, health disparities uh, in our communities, uh, especially our African-American communities, our um, Latinx communities, uh, etc. And last week, of course, uh, due to the unexpected and untimely transition uh, of Chadwick Boseman, uh, we wanted to pick up this uh, conversation around health uh, in general, but in particularly, you know, around uh, colorectal cancer. That is the cancer that he was afflicted with, um, that he succumbed to physically, but we know that spiritually he will always be with us uh, because of who he was uh, in terms of his character and his integrity, the gift that he shared with us. Uh, but also he'll be with us uh, in perpetuity because of the roles that he chose to play. Uh, he chose to play some uh, iconic, significant roles you know, as part of you know, his acting career. And uh, I uh, had the uh, privilege of uh, watching most of them, if not all of them. Uh, we all, of course, know him as King T'Challa in Black Panther. Uh, that movie is very, very powerful. And again, it sparked just a cultural renaissance, not just for African-Americans, but for uh, Africans you know, in the diaspora, as well as uh, continental you know, Africans, uh, because my family in South Africa had an awesome time, powerful time, uh, watching the movie that uh, is a reflection, you know, in so many ways, you know, of uh, South African culture and a lot of, you know, African culture. So we say, of course, you know, Wakanda forever. But also uh, Chadwick, you know, played Thurgood Marshall. Uh, he played um, Jackie Robinson. Um, and these uh, just iconic figures you know, um, as part of our ancestral cloud of witnesses, you know, uh, in the sports world as well as, you know, um, legally. So, so he has just done some significant work. Uh, and um, as we celebrated him, it was just very, very painful uh, to realize that when he did a video to support our frontline workers, our essential workers, you know, uh, as the pandemic, you know, was uh, making its way uh, in and through our communities. Um, he received a lot of criticism, uh, a lot of, you know, um, uh, painful comments uh, because, you know, of his appearance. And that, of course, revealed, even though we didn't know uh, that he was uh, afflicted and challenged by, you know, uh, uh, colorectal cancer, um, just the stigma, you know, um, um, after we uh, revealed and how our society is just so fixated and addicted to appearance, uh, not knowing that, you know, uh, it is our character, it is the spirit that lives within us, you know, uh, our physical nature, uh, who we are physically, is just a host uh, of that divine spirit that re resides in each one of us. Uh, and so, you know, we would want to uh, have that conversation, and I'm so glad uh, this morning to be able uh, to have that conversation uh, and to welcome to Faith Without Borders, um, one who is at the forefront of this, you know, a colorectal challenge in so many ways. It is a joy for me to welcome 
uh, Dr. Zuri Morel. Uh, he is a leading Los Angeles uh, colorectal surgeon and specialist. Dr. Morel currently serves as the chairman of the Samuel O'Chen Comprehensive Cancer Institute and physician member on the board of directors of Cedar sinai Medical Center here in Los Angeles. Uh, I met uh, Dr. Zuri, as I call him, um, when I was the senior pastor at Home United Methodist Church. And for uh, me, faith and health are two sides of the same coin uh, because our health is our wealth. And as a result of that, vital faith goes together with living a vital uh, and healthy life. And so um, Dr. Zuri was part of the team uh, that we uh, had annually to come to Home United Methodist Church uh, to uh, talk with us and to work with us on health challenges in general, health education in general, but in particularly around colorectal uh, cancer. So, so welcome, uh, Dr. Zuri. Uh, if you are there. Uh, How are you, sir? It's good to have you. Good That's to all. It's good to see you. Yes, yes. Thank you. I know you are on call, and I just appreciate you so much, my brother. Uh, no, of course. It's uh, great to see you again, and, and thank you so much for for helping, uh, you know, bring this bring this uh, this topic to light, especially in our community. You know, I've been I've been working with you for years now, and I can't believe it's been a while since I've seen you. So it <laughs> looks like you're doing well, and uh, I'm very happy that you're continuing to to preach your message. I think what's what's really interesting about all of this, especially colorectal cancer as a whole. Mm -hmm that you know it's the number two cause of cancer related death in america when you look at men and women combined mm. it's the third most common cancer so if you look at a man the number one common cause of cancer in this country is lung cancer from smoking and then it's prostate cancer and then it's colorectal cancer mm. for women it's lung cancer and then breast cancer and then colorectal cancer but in terms of death the second most common cause of cancer related deaths in america is colon cancer. And as I told you um, a few years ago, it, it doesn't have to be. You know, mm -hmm. colorectal cancer is the most curable when detected early and the only one that you really can have an active role in not getting. Mm -hmm. Yet we still have so many people that that die from this disease. And, and what's scary is mm -hmm. we're seeing an increase, a 12-fold increase in people younger than the age of, of uh, 45. And so that is something that we really have to pay attention to. And there's many reasons for that, which I know we'll, we'll discuss. But, mm -hmm. but it's important to know that, that the knowledge uh, in terms of treating this disease and in terms of, of, of uh, diagnosing this disease and preventing this disease is, is with your parishioners. It's something that we can all have, to have an active role in. People always say, how, how is that possible? Why, why are there so many colorectal cancer-related deaths in this country. Well, there's a multitude of reasons, but number one is really what we put in our mouths. Mm -hmm. That is something that is so important. And, and what I use to illustrate this, Pastor, mm -hmm. is that if you look at African-Americans, we have the highest rate of colorectal cancer in the world. Mm -hmm. I do medical missions to Uganda. And let me tell you, you know what I don't operate on in Uganda? Colon cancer, because there almost isn't any. In, mm -hmm. in Nigeria and Uganda, there's hardly any colon cancer, yet I'm telling you, that African-Americans, and there's no, there's hardly any genes that actually separate African-Americans and even Caucasians, let alone African-Americans and Africans, okay? Yet, we get colorectal cancer at an alarming rate, and they almost don't get it over there. Hmm. So what, what's the main difference? The main difference is twofold. Number one is diet. You know, everything in Uganda, I love to say, is, is we call it trendy here, 
farm to table, but everything there really is farm to table. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm there, I barely eat any red meat. Mm-hmm. And because they don't, you know, because that diet is not heavy in red meat. And it's a lot of hoja, which is a lot of like beans and a lot of rice and yeah. a lot of uh, vegetables. And it's a really high fiber diet. So that's number one. So the way that the way that we break down animal proteins and animal fats in our body, we break it down into something called a pro carcinogen. Mm-hmm. That means something that if you eat enough of and it lays around in your body long enough, that can turn into cancer, mm-hmm. pro carcinogen. And so what are procarcinogens? Processed food, bacon, red meat, such as, you know, um, beef, lamb, things of that nature. And I hate to tell you, even pork, pork is actually not the other white meat, is actually considered a red meat also. Hmm. So these kind of meats and the way we break it down, and if we eat a diet high in that, that can cause and help contribute to cancer. Mm-hmm. Now, the other major difference in these other countries is there's hardly any obesity. There's it's a, still a lot of physical activity, a lot of that kind of work. And there's really not a lot of obesity there. So those are the two things that we can do in this country to help de- uh, minimize our risk for colon cancer. But the key is this. Me mm-hmm. telling someone about the the diet now who's an adult won't have as much impact as that adult who's listening going and making sure that they feed their family members, whether it's their grandchildren, whether it's their children, mm-hmm. healthy breakfast and start to transmit their health, healthy lifestyle knowledge to kids. Mm-hmm. You know, we need about 20 to 25 grams of fiber a day. Okay. Mm-hmm. Fiber, what the fiber, what fiber does is help to basically escort waste through our body and out into the toilet. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it decreases something called our colonic transit time. Mm-hmm. Reason that's important is because anytime we eat anything, there's still waste and there's some procarcinogens there. And by the time it gets to your colon, you want it to be out of your body as quickly as possible. And, you know, um, Dr. Saul or Pastor Saul, I'm sorry, I like to start at the at the uh, at the beginning. And I want to tell everybody what is I want to ask them, what is the colon and the rectum for? OK, mm-hmm. now, usually when I ask this question, I think last time when I was at home and I asked this question, you know, people raise their hand and they always say to make poop. That's what they say <laughs> to make poop. But actually, that's not the purpose of the colon. Okay, so when we eat food, and this is important, I think, that we all understand this. When you eat food, you place it in your mouth, you start chewing it, which is what we call mastication. So as you chew it, you chew, you're breaking it down, you swallow it, it goes down to your esophagus, and then it goes into your stomach. Mm -hmm. And the stomach's job, the stomach is full of acid. It helps to break down the food. You're still not absorbing hardly any food there. You're breaking it down, breaking it down into micro, micronutrients. That then goes into your small intestine. The small intestine is where about 90, 95% of absorption occurs, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's when we absorb everything. And by the time things get to the colon, that is pretty much waste. The colon's number one job is to reabsorb water from the colon so that the body has enough water to live. Mm -hmm. And the rectum's job is to hold stool until a socially appropriate time to empty, Mm -hmm. okay? That's Mm -hmm. the point. So the fiber helps to speed up that transit time, the time from when... Waste gets to your colon to the time it's out of your body, okay? So that's why a high-fiber diet and lots of water are very important for having soft, easy bowel movements, but also the real importance is eliminating waste as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And so fiber, high-fiber diets and preventing obesity are two major ways that we can decrease our chances of colorectal cancer. Now, about 8% of colorectal cancer is hereditary. And so this mm-hmm. goes into what we always talk about, uh, Pastor Saul's about being your own healthcare advocate. Mm-hmm. As a patient, I know it's hard right now. It's hard to see doctors sometimes. And, and I'll be honest, as a physician, the reason it's hard for 
a lot of physicians is that sometimes we're stuck in health systems where you have to see X number of patients in an hour. You're just going, going, going. And so you love what we refer to as good patients. Mm -hmm. For so long, African-Americans, us, we've been too good of patient. What, what do we think of as doctors sometimes when we say good patient? You sit down, you listen, you just do what we say, and you leave. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you that that is, you know, that could be a good patient to us, but that is not being a good patient to yourself. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whenever you go to a doctor's appointment, you should kind of, you should know what you want to get out of that appointment. You should know a little bit of background. If you know you have diabetes, if you know you have high blood pressure, you want to make sure that you talk to the doctor and make sure that that is under control. And if it's not under control, you ask the doctor, you sit down, you pull out your sheet of paper with questions on it and you ask a doctor, well, if this doesn't get better, what's our next step? What's our next step? When I first joined and, and started working at, at Cedar Sinai, it was very interesting because I would, I would have a lot of uh, younger patients, and they were different ethnicities, different religions, and they would sit down with me and have a ton of questions. Mm -hmm. And at first, because that wasn't even my cultural experience, because I never really asked the doctor questions, I just sit and listen. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe it's because they thought I looked young or was I black, and they didn't really trust me. But that culturally, they ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. My African American patients. I can a lot of times I can say anything and they'll say, okay, and do it. And that happens with others. That happens when they have other doctors too. Mm -hmm. And so the key is to ask questions and to know that we're in this together. We need right. to be, you need to be a healthcare advocate. It's my problem. If I don't have enough time to sit and talk and all that, that's not, that's a me problem. That's not a you problem. You need to get what you need to get out of these appointments. Mm -hmm. And the reason that it's so important to have that, <clears throat> excuse me, relationship interaction with doctors is brings me to the second most or the third thing that we can do to prevent colorectal cancer in this mm -hmm. country, which is getting our colonoscopies in a timely mm -hmm. fashion. Okay. Mm -hmm. So colonoscopies, if some of the audience don't know, that's when you, you basically the day before you clean yourself out of any waste. Mm -hmm. And then we under anesthesia, you have a camera that's inserted in the rectum and it goes all the way throughout the colon and it looks for something called polyps. Right. So what's a polyp? A polyp is a small growth that all colorectal cancer starts as these little polyps. And you're able to see the polyp during the colonoscopy and you're able to take it out during the colonoscopy, thus preventing colorectal cancer. The reason this is important brings us back around to what you said up front about healthcare disparities. So for a multitude of reasons, African-Americans are offered colonoscopies less than other people. And when you look at data, it says that we refuse them more than other people. We don't want them. Um, and you know nobody really wants anybody sticking random, you know, sticking instruments in their anus. Okay. But the key is that's what we need. And that comes to being comfortable with, with your doctor. I don't care if I have a black patient, Asian patient, Caucasian patient. When it's time and I say it's time for your colonoscopy. Yeah. A lot of times my black patients and a lot of other patients, Latino, even Caucasians are like, doc, I don't want anybody sticking things in my butt. Well, of course not. I know you don't, but if I'm telling you that this will save your life, then what? Mm -hmm. A lot of patients will tell me when I say this, well, doc, I don't really care. I've lived a good life. And I say, well, what about your, your wife? And they'll say, well, she'll be all right without me. And then the way I get people, I say, what about your kids? And they mm -hmm. say, what do you mean? I say, you getting a colonoscopy not only affects you in terms of if we see polyps, we take it out, but then you take that information, mm -hmm. you take it to your children right. and your children will know this and maybe they'll need a colonoscopy sooner. They'll right. know their history. They'll be their own healthcare advocate and they'll get their colonoscopy sooner. And the way I really hammer that point home is I talk about my personal story mm -hmm. is my dad. And I think I told you the story before, mm -hmm. um, Pastor Sauls, but, you know, my father, typical man, my dad's highly educated, uh, 
intelligent man, but same thing. I don't want anybody sticking any tubes in my butt. Right. I say, Dad, you really need to get your colonoscopy. So he goes to the health system that will remain nameless. That's pretty big in California, but uh, sometimes you know you have to you have to stay on them. But I won't mention the name. <laughs> and they uh, told my dad at age fifty. I say, Dad, go get a colonoscopy. So he comes back home that night, and he's walking funny. He's like, I can't believe you do this for a living. This is so painful. I said, What are you talking about? He goes, I had that colonoscopy you wanted. I said, Dad, did you drive yourself home? He's like, yes. I said, you did not have a colonoscopy. You had something called a flexible sigmoidoscope. Mm. Now, this test in this day and age, to me, is one of the biggest reasons people don't get colonoscopy. So back in the day, it was a it was a good test because any doctor could do it. And it's basically you put a scope in the anus, but you're not under anesthesia. And it looks at the lower third of your colon. OK, now this is problematic for two reasons. Number one is 50, 60 years ago, you would be able to get a lot of polyps in that lower third, and that's where a lot of colon cancer comes from. Well, guess what? In African-Americans especially, but now we're seeing in other races, a lot of our polyps are on the right side of the colon. You can only get there without a colon with a colonoscopy. So you're not getting a colonoscopy, a full colonoscopy, especially for African-Americans, does not do you a good service because a lot of our polyps and thus a lot of our cancers can be on that right part of the colon um, and so a colonoscopy is the only way to see that. Yeah. So I had to call that health system, basically yell at them for not doing the right test, which is a colonoscopy on my father. And this is when my father was 51. And back then the guidelines used to be at age 50. So they were already late. And so after I got him to get his colonoscopy, drove him there, picked him up, he actually had five polyps mm. that were further away than the edge of where that flexible sigmoidoscope went. Mm. Now I use this, for my own personal gain, I'm not going to lie, because I kept telling my dad for years, I said, hey, man, I saved your life. I saved your life, dad. You owe me. I saved your life. You know, <laughs> we would joke about that. Well, I am uh, turning 46 this year. Mm -hmm. When I was 42, because I knew my dad's family, because I knew my family history, my dad had five polyps, subsequent colonoscopies, by the way, he would have two polyps, three polyps. So we had over a total of 10 polyps by the time I was 42. Mm. Now, the I worked with the American Cancer Society and the American Cancer Society is amazing. And they reduced the guidelines for colonoscopies initially for African-Americans to age 45. Right. And now it's for all people yeah. to age 45. OK, I got mine at 42 because I knew my family history. And lo and behold, I'm not obese. I work out. I eat right. However, I still had a pretty large polyp, mm. not a cancer, a polyp on the right side. They were able to take that out with a colonoscopy. And guess what? It would have been a cancer if I would have waited till 45 when I would have been screening age. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I say all this to say, because I knew my family history, I was able to get a test that saved my life sooner than if I did not. And I knew to do that. And all of these things are important because being your own healthcare advocate encompasses everything of what I just said. Mm -hmm. It is doing what you can do on your personal level, eating right, exercising, doing those things to help mitigate your risk, knowing your family history, mm -hmm. making sure that you know when your parents had X, Y, and Z, because that allowed me to get my test sooner, which thus saved my life. And now, as you know, my daughters, I have a 13-year-old and 11-year-old, and they get so tired of hearing me talk about polyps and when they're getting their first colonoscopy. But they know they're getting their first colonoscopy at about 39 to 40. Right. They know that already. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's done. And and I, they know this at such a young age. And so, Pastor, the, the reason I went into this field is because when discovered, number one is when discovered early, I'm a surgeon and I love to help people. 
-hmm. When discovered early, this sur this um, through surgery is totally curable. This cancer is. However, something better is what if you don't have to get it? What if you never got it? What if we were able to do colonoscopies and everybody who was like younger than 40, you know? I mean, these there's a lot of different, that, that's, that's hard to do because in California, you could probably get away with it because there's so many people like me, but in Georgia, Mississippi and all these places in the South, they don't have as many doctors. So you can't have screening guidelines for that you can't, in this country, you cannot have screening guidelines that you can't achieve, mm -hmm. okay? However, what's important to know is you get a colonoscopy, a screening means you have no symptoms and no family history. Okay, if you have any symptoms, what are symptoms? If you have blood mixed in your stool, that's an automatic colonoscopy. I don't care what, how old you are. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have some bright red blood for rectum, some changes in bowel habits, and these last about a month, you see a doctor, they're not getting better over another month, then you need to see a specialist like me. Okay, mm -hmm. you have to be your healthcare advocate, meaning that you try to treat your symptoms, you try to find out what you can about your symptoms. They don't get better with over-the-counter remedies. You see your doctor. They don't get better. You insist on seeing a specialist. Right. That is the key. And also something else that I think is, is truly underrated, I alluded to it earlier, is that you have to be comfortable with your primary care doctor. Mm -hmm. Most surgeons aren't like me. I love to talk, obviously, and I like to interact with people. But most, most surgeons are just, you know, technicians. Mm -hmm. And that's fine for most surgeons. Your family medicine doctor needs to be somebody who you have such a good relationship with that that doctor and can tell you the truth and that you're willing to hear it. Meaning that if you go in and the doctor says it's time for your colonoscopy and you say, I don't want anybody sticking things in my butt. And the doctor goes, all right, never mind. Uh, we could do this less this cologuard or this other test that could just look for for blood in the stool. That's why that's another reason why a lot of us are getting colon cancer too. It's because of that relationship. If a patient comes to me mm -hmm. and they say, and I say, oh, you got to get your colonoscopy. They're like, doc, I don't want anybody doing that. I give you that whole speech I just gave, mm -hmm. Pastor Saul. Yeah. Because sometimes a doctor's number one goal is sometimes to give you what you need, not what you want. And everybody needs this particular test because it could save your life. And more importantly, it could save your kid's life and it could save your generation's life. Yeah, absolutely. No, you, you, you're so right in terms of just uh, having a, uh, a disposition of proaction and prevention. Uh, and then part of that, I mean, as I hear you, you know, uh, say is just this, you know, uh, essential, honest uh, and open partnership with your yeah. physician and, and, and the importance of, you know, preparation when you do go, you know, uh, to your, 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 you know, your physician. And so uh, that's just, you know, a critical um, I wanna, because I know you're on the call. I don't know how long we're gonna have you, but you know the the the, you know whenever we would have our our health events, you know um, uh, we would talk about stigma, you know, yes. uh, and and especially for men, you know. Uh, uh, now let me just say, you know, um, um, I've had my you know uh, colonoscopy about 12 months ago, uh, right. and you know, and while I was at home, and I made a covenant, you know, uh, with some of the men there that whenever you go and get you know, uh, your screening, that we will uh, accompany you, we will drive you uh, mm -hmm. and, and care for you, you know, uh, while you're there so you don't feel like you're by yourself. And even though, you know, um, I left Holman, you know, I, you know, uh, still had that covenant with uh, those two brothers. And so uh, the minute I got my appointment, I called them, you know, uh, awesome. and, 
And, and I was accompanied by two of them, Freddie and Alonzo. And they came and picked me up. Uh, and they were with me the entire time, you know, mm. drove me back. And we, you know, uh, uh, finished up our time together with lunch, you know, uh, awesome. and just an awesome conversation of brotherhood and, and how we ought to support one another around, you know, our health. So, uh, so this is possible, you know, this yeah. is so critical, you know, uh, for us. And we see a lot of ads, you know, of, you know, um, uh, how to just have a quick test and all of that. And, and I'm glad right. you clarify that up, that there's a difference right. between, you know, so, getting your colonoscopy and I forgot the name of the other one. Right. That you so mentioned. it's a colon-guarded fit test. Now, those tests do have a purpose. So those mm -hmm. tests are good at finding colon cancer. Right. But the purpose of a colonoscopy, what I always tell people, a colonoscopy is not done to find cancer. Mm -hmm. It's done to prevent Cancer. That's the difference is that you can take out polyps before it becomes a cancer. Now, the Cologar tests, I use those tests. If you've had five, you know, four to five colonoscopies that are clear and you're about 80, 80 years old, 75 years old, you know, then we can have that discussion about a Cologar. OK, but you're a young person and, and young goes all the way up to, to 80. OK, <laughs> and even I mean, heck, my dad is probably going to be the youngest 80 year old whenever he gets to 80 that you know because he's 75 now and he's probably younger than me uh in spirit so so age really isn't just a, a hard fast number but the key with those other tests is that they're good at finding cancer which still has some value because if you do it frequently enough plus your colonoscopies and you find a cancer early then you'll be able to still cure a patient but it does not find they're not really good at finding polyps so polyps are what is necessary to be removed so that you never get cancer. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the key. So, you know, the, the issue is that, and a lot of us are gonna start getting the fit tests and the Cologuard because what doctors will say sometimes, do you want a colonoscopy? They'll tell you about it and you say no, and then they'll say, okay, well, this is it because this is still under a guideline, it's still okay. But I am here to tell you and everyone listening to you that a colonoscopy is still the only way to actually prevent, the best chance of preventing cancer. You know, granted, colonoscopies do have uh, a slight occasion, like a 6% miss rate where they can miss polyps. But if you get them frequently enough, that washes out. Okay. Meaning that you will still, if you get them every five years, like we recommend colorectal surgeons every five years, if you have a polyp is every three years until you don't have a polyp, then that will mitigate your risk to the point where you should not ever have anybody getting colorectal cancer. And that's really the key. I mean, and when I say everybody, if some people do have a have a heavy genetic predisposition. That's about 8% of colon cancers. There's some people that we start doing scopes on at age 20. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you know, who have these genetic predispositions. So all of these things are very important. The best thing that you can do, especially as a parent, and I'm going to tell you, it's hard right now. My, I have great daughters and it's hard because everybody's bored. What do we do when we're bored? We eat my kids, <laughs> their secret pleasure with like a lot of kids or something I'd never buy them, but they still manage to get them every once in a while. Are those like fire hot Cheetos and those, <laughs> you know, all those, all those garbage, you know, if you ever think about it, Pastor, what is a Cheeto, right? It's not a chip. It's, if you think about what is a Cheeto, right? It's not a potato. It's not corn. I mean, it's like an amalgamation of processed foods. And that's something else that's very important. Right. In Africa, I've barely had any processed food. There's not lunch meat and, and all these other things that are so, like, are so critical. In, in this country, I love to say that it's embarrassing that we have a hunger problem here in this country because we have more food than we know what to do with. However, yeah. a lot of our food is garbage yeah. and, you know, and we're all guilty of it. I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not the guy that's going to say, Oh, you're eating, 
you're eating that burger today on a holiday, you know, but I am the guy that says that I eat red meat maybe once every two months, you know, and, and, and there's little different, there's little changes, Pastor Saul, that, that you can make. If you, if you eat red meat every single day right. and you change it and you start eating it three times a week, that's even better than eating it every day. Right. You know, the hard part is when I was a kid, it was actually cheaper to cook food at home than it was to buy it. But now it really is cheaper to go buy, you know, uh, a fast food, a burger or something like that. And you'll feel fuller. But but that's garbage. You know, and it's hard. It's hard for me to tell a family, you know, a, you know, your kid wants French fries and burgers. And it's actually cheaper to do that than to go and cook a meal. And you're tired from work and all those things. It, it is really difficult. Yeah. But you yeah. kind of have to think about it as the habits that you're teaching your kids. And, and listen, I'm guilty of it. too. My wife calls me grandpa. Because my daughters can get whatever they want. I bring them candy. Okay. I do get them, I give them candy too much. Like one, you know, once every couple of weeks or so, too much. And my wife, my wife has tried to fix that problem by making me take them to the dentist. And guess what? I'm giving them candy a little bit less than I used to give <laughs> than I used to give them candy. So so you know, we all um, I'm not trying to say ho- be holier than thou or anything. I'm just trying to yeah. elucidate yeah. this message, especially to our people, Pastor. Yeah. That yeah, you gotta, and, and, we got to do better. Yeah, we got to do better with the obesity situation. Absolutely, all of those things. Absolutely, and and yeah, it's not about being perfect; it's about being proactive. Right. And also, yes, I mean, you mentioned the two preventative pieces, which is diet, you know, and physical exercise. You know, uh, 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 and and you know, when I went to my you know uh, dentist, you know. Um, uh, last year, I'm due again, you know, to do my annual this year, you know, um, we talked about, you know, y- y- your mouth being, you know, a, a very, very essential organ, you know, and I oh. never thought of my mouth as that and until I realized that, you know, really everything, if everything major, significant that enters your body goes through your mouth. And yes, I think sir. many, many times we take our mouths for granted, you know, yes. uh, and so this dentist said, so you need to understand why it's important that you come see me, you know, because yeah. of that, you know, and now you've mentioned, you know, uh, the whole piece about how we, you know, uh, um, um, uh, take our food, you know, eat through our mouths, you know, uh, and, right. and we are certainly the ones that can control that. And the same piece around, you know, uh, physical exercise as preventative, you know, uh, strategies. Uh, Dr. Zuri, as always, you know, uh, you, you, you're not just inspirational, you are instructional. Uh, okay. As always, I, I appreciate your, you know, uh, uh, compassion and your companionship, you know, uh, you. Uh, with me and so many others, you know, uh, during during this uh, time. And and we want to just in, encourage folk, you know, uh, to see how we can, you know, end the disease of stigma uh, and to see how we can truly just embrace opportunities, you know, uh, uh, to be well, become well and stay well uh, because your health is your wealth. You know, yeah. uh, and, 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 and for too long have we squandered, you know, uh, our, um, our wealth because we are not, you know, uh, taking care of our, our health. Glad that you're on the front lines and, uh, and thanks so much again for taking time out of your busy schedule, being on call and all of that. We're going to do this again, you know, Pastor, uh, please, as we continue please, I, to, I hope so. to do this. And work. I'm always there for you. And I really appreciate, you know, all you do, even from when I, when I first met you and how uplifting, uh, you know, your message is really. And, and, and one other thing I just want to say is that it's obvious and I, and I hope I don't put you in a bad situation, but politic politically right now, if it's not obvious to all of us listening, we have to take care of ourselves. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that, that starts with what's in our, 
our minds, our hearts, what we put in our mouth, you guys, mm -hmm. is that nobody cares about us. It's obvious now. I mean, we already knew that, mm -hmm. but now we see it. We have to care. God cares about us. Yeah. But I mean, we have to also look out for each other. We have to support each other. When somebody's getting the colonoscopy, that's one of the best things I ever heard. Mm -hmm. I do colonoscopy parties where basically it's friends and everybody who gets together to do that because we have to support each other Absolutely. in our health and Absolutely. even in wealth and in our emotionally, uh, emotionally, socially, everything. So God bless. Thank you so much, Pastor. Thanks so much. Uh, blessings to you and your family. Much love. Keep on keeping on. And uh, you are certainly moving uh, us in, as individuals and our community from health disparity to health vitality, and we appreciate that. Uh, Dr. Thank Zuri Morrell, uh, thank you so much. That was just so uh, powerful. Again, we are here you know, because of you know, uh, the life and the legacy of Chadwick uh, Bozeman, uh, and uh, we want to you know, uh, just share a few images about him. Uh, but also, you know, share a message that he has for us, especially during these consequential times, you know, these tumultuous times that we find ourselves in. You know, uh, let us, you know, hear, you know, this message from, you know, uh, Chadwick, you know, who now speaks to us, you know, as one of our most recent ancestors. He speaks to us from that ancestral cloud of witness for such a time as this. Listen to what he has to say for us. And we'll be right back. Anything else you want to say from your heart? All of that, that 70 million um, group of young people who will come out and vote. I believe in you. I think you can turn um, our nation around. You can make it live up to what it's supposed to do. It's, it's not just that you are the future. You're actually the present. You're actually um, what we're supposed to be at this moment. And the fact that you have a voice, the fact that you can have a say, you know, you vote for whoever you want for, vote for what you believe in. But I believe that the majority of you can see what's actually happening and you want things to change. So I say all that to say, you know, thank you in advance for, um, for your input and the victory um, that is to come. Welcome back to Faith Without Borders. Uh, glad that you are with us. Uh, we uh, continue, beloved, uh, with uh, our time together. And um, for this you know, time, we uh, will be having a very, very critical and very uh, significant conversation you know, as we you know, move towards November the 3rd. Uh, as you know, we have been on a 10-week uh, series uh, here at Faith Without Borders, entitled Intersectional Convergence, Organizing and Mobilizing for Inclusivity, Equality, and Equity. Um, because we are facing, you know, one of the most challenging pandemics, you know, uh, uh, in, you know, recent history. You know, uh, we are um, moving towards one of the most consequential elections uh, in uh, recent, you know, uh, history here in the United States. And uh, we, are, we continue to deal with the epidemic of racial uh, injustice, institutional racism, uh, and uh, all that's converging right now, you know, uh, for us in so many different ways. And it takes place, you know, uh, in different places. Uh, we know that, you know, uh, since the uh, killing of George Floyd, there has been protests you know, consistently across the country. And then we've had, 
you know, um, subsequent, you know, uh, uh, killings in various, you know, uh, cities, including, you know, here in uh, Los Angeles, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a, a minute. But um, one of the most consequential uh, elections for us here in the city and county of Los Angeles is, you know, uh, the uh, race for district attorney. And this morning, uh, it is a joy for me uh, to welcome um, one of the candidates, you know, for district attorney, uh, Mr. George Gascone, that is with us. Um, and um, Mr. Gascone, are you there? Yes, I am, but I, uh, I'm having video problems. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. And uh, let's see if we can. Is your video turned on? Yes, it is. Uh, okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll continue to work on that. Yeah, you know. Showing my wife picture when I uh, stopped video on the screen, but now I cannot. It's completely blank here. I'm not sure why. Okay, so we, yeah, you're right. We see, uh, uh, is your wife named Fabiola? Yeah, right. Okay, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm having screen problems. Uh, let okay. me let me try to, I think I may try to get out and come back in too and see if we okay, can get it fixed. Okay, why don't we try that and we'll continue because I also have, you know, uh, this morning two of my uh, colleagues and comrades, you know, with me. That is Gilbert Johnson, uh, who is the lead justice organizer uh, at Community Coalition. Gilbert, are you there? Yes, sir. <clears throat> Ready and willing. Yes, sir. Good to see you. Good, Good to have you. Appreciate you, man. Uh, much love, man of faith. And then uh, also we have Linda Gomez. Uh, and uh, Linda is so good, you know, uh, to have you with us. And uh, Linda is, you know, uh, here. She's the Civic Engagement Specialist at Community Coalition Action Fund. You know, uh, that's the C4 of Community Coalition. And Gilbert is with the C3, you know, uh, aspect of it. And uh, Linda has been watching you know, uh, this race uh, very, very carefully, very, very actively, you know, working, you know, on what needs to happen around candidates, you know, uh, during this time. Linda, are you there? Good morning. Good morning. I am here. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to be here. Yeah, so good to uh, uh, see the two of you. Let me just uh, once again uh, appreciate the two of you for uh, who you are and the work that you are doing. Um, I know Gilbert and I, we were together yesterday, you know, uh, at the uh, Black Lives Matter March. Uh, and we'll uh, uh, check in about that, you know, uh, later on. Uh, and Linda, you know, we started working, you know, when I first met you, it was uh, about a year or so ago when we started talking about the census, you know, uh, and you have since moved on to the Action Fund. Uh, so uh, so you are, you, 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 you're moving on up, my sister, and uh, with the same passion uh, and the same commitment and really appreciate that. You know, uh, at Community Coalition, uh, uh, we continue to work extremely hard to bring together intersectionality, unity, uh, as well as solidarity, especially, you know, uh, between black and brown communities. Uh, we would want to appreciate our leader there, Alberto Retana, uh, for his, you know, uh, leadership there and uh, the entire team. And that is reflective, of course, uh, in who we have with us this morning. So, so glad that the two of you can join us. While uh, Mr. Gascone work out, you know, his uh, video, uh, otherwise, we'll just go with sound if need uh, be. But I've invited the two of you to join me because I wanted to frame the uh, consequential race, which will have national implications of the district attorney in the county of Los Angeles. I wanted to frame it around Gilbert, the work that we've done, 
you know, uh, in, you know, this criminal injustice system, as you call it, you know, uh, in so many ways. I mean, uh, uh, you've been at the forefront with so many other of our, you know, uh, uh, grassroots, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, movement, you know, uh, building organizations, you know, around, you know, uh, uh, criminal justice reform, law enforcement, uh, and we've had some significant wins, you know, uh, but, you know, we have a way to go uh, to November the 3rd with some uh, uh, significant propositions on the ballot, and of course, you know, uh, the DA's race. So, so uh, Gilbert, can you just kind of just briefly give us just a quick synopsis of our wins, but then also tell us where we are and where we're heading to and what we need to prepare for, you know, uh, in this election season as we move, you know, uh, towards November the 3rd. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, Pastor Charles, and much appreciation um, and gratitude to you for allowing this space. Um, I appreciate uh, George Gascon for being here along with my comrade, uh, Linda Gomez. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, Community Coalition's uh, mission is to transform the social and economic conditions in South Los Angeles that foster crime, poverty, and addiction by building a mass-based community driven institution that influences ch and changes public policy. And so we've been doing that work since we were founded 30 years ago by now, Congress member Karen Bass. And since then, I mean, we've seen so many um, game changing policies and propositions and initiatives uh, passed. Uh, but when you think about the harm that the uh, crime control era has really imposed on um, poor and working class, black and brown communities. When you think about uh, California's spending priorities for the last 30, 40 years and how we spent a trillion dollars building up this so-called uh, public safety complex, um, which really kind of, uh, you know, when we think about public safety, it aligns with the law and order narrative, which has contributed to the large amounts of police that we see in our community. Um, you know, why we built 22 prisons and one or two uh, college institutions in the last 30 years. Why, you know, how uh, Prop 13 defunded education and, you know, Ronald Reagan defunded mental health um, in many ways. And the services and the social safety net programs that the community needs because we've been historically disadvantaged, historically disenfranchised, historically divested in and overlooked. Uh, we're not seeing the investment into those safety net programs um, to help build up and, and create thriving and healthy and safe neighborhoods. Why you don't see high crime rates in you know more wider affluent communities because they have wealth, they have resources, they have access to opportunities that you just don't see in communities like mine, the one I was raised, born and raised in South Central Los Angeles. And so um, I say that because I know in the title of this podcast, you mentioned intersection, intersectional convergence, equality and equity. Mm -hmm. And at Community Coalition's frame, um, at Community Coalition, our frame is really that equity will get us to equality. We have to take dollars out of these racially oppressive systems and invest them into communities that have been hit hardest by mass incarceration and an over-reliance on law enforcement and policing um, to help build those communities up. And so 
Um, I appreciate that, you know, equality and equity, but we always like to interject equity first mm -hmm. because when we invest in the communities that have been historically marginalized. That's how we see, um, you know, those communities improving. And so when you think about um, Proposition 47, which big shout out to, um, you know, G George Gascon for being a, a co-author, I believe, on that bill and the thousands um, of people that I'm sorry, I have a lot of kids in my house. I have. Five that's all right. Children. That's all right. We we I enjoy that. You know me. We enjoy the sounds of babies. That's good. That's good. Yes, yes, they are our future, and we are paving the way for a better future for them. Um, much different than the one I had to grow up. You know. Yes. Um, experiencing, but uh, you know, Prop 47 Community Coalition really led the movement to get that passed in Southern California, where we had huge convenings. We had. Um, mm -hmm weekly rallies and we just did a lot of work uh, because the justice reinvestment piece of uh, the Prop 47 campaign, well, one, you know, being able to see thousands and thousands of folks released from jail and then have access, jail and prison, and then have access to clean their records um, was phenomenal and huge in itself. Yeah. But the savings that we were able to capture that were redirected again equitably to communities that have very high needs. That's uh, the piece that that really stands out um, because that's when you get to the root causes. Again, when you think about our mission statement, what's causing crime? What's causing um, the addiction and the substance abuse? You know, what's causing the violence? A lot of it directly derives from poverty. And so how you address poverty and how you reduce crime and violence is by eliminating poverty mm -hmm. and how you eliminate poverty is by investing dollars and resources into those communities. And so, um, you know, AB 109 kind of set the tone for that um, realignment where, you know, uh, uh, the prison population, a lot of folks uh, were shifted to a local jail and we saw some jail reductions um, from that proposition 36, uh, which um, in a way, kind of, it, it, I want to say it undid a piece of the three strikes law where if you were found f with possession um, of drugs, uh, I actually got released under Prop 36 hmm. um, about hmm. 2005. Um, it was a sentencing reform yeah. um, in Prop 36. And so these different reforms, and correct me if I'm wrong, Linda or, or George, on Prop 36, but that sentencing reform has moved us away from like the 101 sentencing disparity that we saw when crack cocaine was being funneled into our community, right? Where you would get um, a ridiculously high amount of time if you were found with crack cocaine, mm -hmm. which was you know, considered a black drug, um, or you were fined predominantly in the black and brown community, Whereas if you had cocaine, which is considered the white man's drug or a rich drug, um, you get a slap on the wrist. Right. Right. And so all of this work um, that has been happening over the last decade, I mean, Proposition uh, 57, you know, getting a, a fair fitness test to um, our youth and the, in court. And, you know, if you have uh, if you've done uh, a good chunk of your time and you have good time credits and you have action at being released early right um, you know right. like all of this work came through policy change mm -hmm. and so um the, the political piece to it all is is crucial uh, in this work and in november we have some very uh, powerful policies and propositions on the ballot that we have to look out for 
And just to um, bring it, those are kind of statewide bills that right. I was talking about, mm -hmm. but to bring it back to the local, um, you know, last year we were able to shut down a $3.5 billion uh, jail expansion yes. plan mm -hmm. where the Board of Supervisors for the last decade um, had planned to actually build a new women's detention center um, called the Miraloma Detention Center mm -hmm. um, in an area that has known to have... Um, uh, what is it? It's in Central Valley. Linda, help me with that. The name, the the sickness, something disease um, in the environment, in the soil. Um, and they want to build a jail there. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm blanking on it too, Linda. But uh, Valley Valley Fever. Valley Fever. Valley, Valley Fever. Fever. Valley Fever. Wow. Right. So they were going so to build. They were going to build a massive jail in a, on a site that was, you know, uh, infected with Valley Fever. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's like right. a double sentence to those who've been who've already been sentenced. Exactly. And the board of supervisors were going to vote on that. Yes. But yes. We shut and it, it was actually it, be able to shut it down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To move forward, you know, it, it had been set in stone. They had already actually started paying the contractors to do the work, but because of the organizing, and because of you know us really stepping up and galvanizing the community. Mm -hmm. um, providing the vehicle for the community to step up and say, no, we're not having this. That money can be used um, in a much better fashion. Um, no, baby, hold on, baby. Um, you know, we were able to shut down that jail plan uh, last year. The Board of Soups also planned to um, turn Men's Central Jail into a mental health jail that was mm -hmm. going to be run by the sheriffs. Right. That's ridiculous. Yeah. How can you expect one of the most corrupt agencies in the nation to run a jail and deal with mentally ill um, or patients that have mental health disorders. Like we know that was going to lead to more criminalization. I saw it firsthand being locked up in LA County jail, how they treat our people with mental illnesses. And so mm -hmm. we were able to shut that down and say no. And now there's a conversation around um, even closing men's central jail mm -hmm. and identifying ways to divert folks mm -hmm. With, and re, and re, um, right and repurpose that uh, that space right. you know uh yes so repurpose it repurpose it but also um to move the folks that are currently in jail into community-based treatment right and mm -hmm. so again that takes money though that takes resources that mm -hmm. takes capacity building um and one of the avenues we plan on helping to build out that community-based system of care through the alternatives to incarceration work the ATI work. So mm -hmm. all of the work that we have been doing over the last decade led us to this moment right. where um, it's, it's called ATI. We call it ATI for short, but the alternative to incarceration mm -hmm. was a huge collaboration yeah. of, you know, many and county we, entities. And we were able to get that done right before COVID uh, uh, right happened. I'm so glad. Yeah. I was glad to be, you know, a, a part of that whole uh, powerful experience, you know, of, of moving from right. juvenile justice, you know, to youth development. Absolutely. Yeah. And you spoke at that, that um, hearing, that Board of Supervisors mm -hmm. hearing. Mm -hmm. uh, I spoke so many community coalition members, ARC mm -hmm. members, Youth mm -hmm. Justice Coalition members, so yeah. many um, folks from the community that have been impacted by these racist systems showed up and spoke out and it's because we continue to speak out and elevate our stories and lived experiences that's why we're in the situation we're in yeah. um and mm -hmm. so uh, the alternatives to incarceration is kind of like that silver bullet yes. when it comes to uh, you know redirecting dollars from the system 
the largest jail system in the world where we were LA County for a long time had the largest jail system. We were the largest incarcerator um, in the world. And now, you know, since COVID happened, we've been able to, or the jail population is reduced by a little over 5,000 people. And so again, when we think about savings and dollars, that's bed space that's not being used. That's, you know, water that's not being used. That's food that we don't have to feed folks. And there have been no stark increases in crime. Right. So it just validates our whole point that, you know, you, you do not have to use our jails as mental health, you, surrogate mental health treatment centers. You can safely redirect folks into community-based programs. Right get them the services they need, the permanent supportive housing, mental health, you know, a, a drug treatment, whatever it may be. And we are actually helping people have better mm -hmm. outcomes. And so we are now in the moment of fighting for those savings to make sure those mm -hmm. dollars come back to the community, especially when we're hearing um, a lot of our elected officials talking about budget cuts. Right. We cannot, we, we look at budget cuts as a direct attack on black and brown and poor and working class communities because with the looming impacts of COVID-19, there's no way we can be talking about cutting social safety net programs and investing more into law enforcement, right. more police yeah. budget, more sheriff's budget. Like, no, that's ridiculous. That's not gonna help us. And tell, so- Yeah, tell us a little bit about, uh, and then I wanna transition to Linda, a little bit about uh, Measure J. You know, that again, another, a uh, huge uh, win for us, but 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 that's it's not a final win because we got to get to November, you know, around what we've been able to accomplish. Again, a grassroots coalition, you know, that's been uh, diligently working, you know, uh, on how do we just re envision resources, right, and and repurpose, you know, resources, and we were able to get that through the Board of Supervisors, Gilbert, just quickly. You know, uh, um, um, you know what is you know a debt measure is on the ballot. We got to be aware of it and get it passed. Yes, absolutely. So um, Measure J is a huge uh, game changer in the criminal justice landscape here in um, LA County, and mm -hmm. it really was a people's effort mm -hmm. um, to say that you know again we need more funding for supportive service. We need more funding for. Um, you know, housing, adequate housing. We need more funding for mm -hmm. treatment and, and, you know, youth development and not more cages, not more jails, right? And so it's going to create about a $10 billion um, extra fund that will be redirected uh, mm -hmm. to uh, the communities that have the highest needs, so redirected equitably. And so um, I, I want to say it creates another line item in the budget in the, mm -hmm. on the county side and the Board of Supervisors. Uh, and that's going to bring a huge chunk of revenue right. annually. And so this is additional money that's not being taken from already existing budgets. Mm -hmm. um, these are additional dollars that will annually annually increase spending for community supportive services. Yeah. And so... Um, it's a huge game changer uh, and it's going to be driven by the people. Big shout out to, you know, United Way, Justice LA, Coco mm -hmm. has been a part of that as well. Uh, and we have to get that passed. So Measure J, right. uh, Reimagine LA, mm -hmm. that's the 
kind of yeah. community based term yeah. for it, but mm-hmm. and we will have you know uh, some time as part of the series to look at these propositions you know uh, around. I want to bring in uh, Linda, uh, you know. Uh, Part of what, you know, Gilbert, you're framing for us is that we've, we've worked very hard to bridge resistance and reimagination, which is critical if we look at, you know, uh, those on whose shoulders we stand, whether they're in South Africa or the United States, they've always bridged, you know, um, you know uh, resistance and, and reimagination, whether it's uh, Maria Makeba through her music, whether it's Yuma Sekela through her music, or whether it's, you know, uh, um, Nelson Mandela, right, you know, uh, or Chris Honey, and in this case, you know, whether it's, you know, um, uh, Harriet Tubman, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., et cetera, et cetera, you know, uh, there's been this bridge, and, and, and this is, you know, where the Action Fund comes in, of course, you know, pushing and, and moving us in that direction of reimagination in strategic ways around it. Linda, you've been very, very active uh, uh, in that action fund, and just tell us a little bit, you know, about what that fund has been about, and this bridges us, you know, uh, to our conversation with, you know, uh, DA candidate uh, George Casco. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, Pastor, um, and thank you, Gilbert, for breaking that down for folks, for myself too. Just thank you for um, the work that you do. Appreciate you. Uh, so we've been working on uh, Gascon's race. Um, we've been talking to folks about it because of the importance of what the Los Angeles district attorney does. A lot of folks just think that um, it's another seat, it's another position, but it's actually like one of the most important um, seats that you can have. This race alone, we've been contacting voters, talking to voters about um, Gascon, seeing what our community members are saying, seeing what they're feeling. Um, there's a lot of hurt out there. there. There's a lot of worries out there. You know. LA can see we need change. We know we need change, you know? And so we've been calling folks. We've already actually called over 3,000 people. We've talked to uh, 15,000 supporters so far and counting. This is just counting. We're going till like November 3rd on this. you know, and just really want to bring awareness like about why this district attorney race in particular here in LA is so important. Um, because there's like a couple reasons. It influences justice policy throughout California. LA sets a lot of trends inside the United States. So like those trends are followed by other states. So if we can make reimagine justice happen here, other states can follow that model. So really understanding what it what it means to hold that seat here in Los Angeles, California. South mm-hmm. LA, we have one of the highest homeless rates criminalizing and prosecuting, this will fall on the DA. So if we want our folks, like to help our folks, we've had a problem with homelessness, we've had a problem with addiction in South LA uh, before we were founded 30 years ago. Like this has been happening. But that DA has the power to decide for folks that are getting charged with being homeless, folks that are getting charged for being, um, for having it, for having troubles right now, it's up to the district attorney to, to decide that. Mm-hmm. Um, the district attorney could also prosecute metro officers who are falsely listing South LA uh, people as gang members. The DA has the power to hold police misconduct accountable. There is so much lack of accountability in this criminal injustice system here in LA. And the DA actually has 
the power to prosecute all officers, including Metro officers. You know, Community Coalition, we have a big push around Push LA, which deals directly with the Metro Police. So having a district attorney that can actually possibly hold folks accountable for once, because we haven't seen it done. So to see them folks held accountable is why this race is so important. Uh, another over policing of black and brown communities falls under how the DA prosecutes. Gilbert talked a little bit earlier about like legislation and policies and um, racial disparities in these policies. The DA has the power to stop over policing out here in South LA. We have not seen that done yet. We don't know what over policing doesn't look like. Yeah. Uh, LA County. We have, um, he, uh, Gilbert talked about the highest incarceration rate, um, LA being that, you know, our numbers have moved down, but the air, I live in uh, South Los Angeles myself. I, I, my area code's 90044. And we have the highest incarceration rate for petty crimes. So for these petty crimes, um, there are, like Gilbert said, alternatives to incarceration. What crimes are being committed? What are, why are these crimes being committed? Where are these crimes being committed at? What does the investment in that area look like? Like getting really to the root cause of these things. And also like the DA can steer folks away from incarceration and into mental health. A lot of our folks, sisters and brothers, family members, friends are suffering from mental health illness. And we see our folks get locked up, not get the services that they are provided. The DA can help with that. Mm -hmm. equitable prosecuting, criminalization of poverty. Basically, the DA has uh, can decide whether who gets incarcerated, who is not. The DA itself, the district attorney, it's one of the least known, most powerful positions in all of Los Angeles politics. All too often, the district attorney's seat, it operates in the shoddy, shadow of the public's purview. So we can't really see what all is going on there. You know, the district attorney has power over law enforcement, immigration, charging folks, bail, sentencing, plea bargaining, and so much more. That's why I personally have dedicated myself to this district attorney race and working on it because we need to see change here in South LA. All right. Thank you so much, Sister Gomez. We really appreciate that. Uh, and within all of this movement of uh, people, power, organized for progress, steps in uh, the uh, uh, candidate, you know, for district attorney in Los Angeles. Uh, and that is none other than, you know, uh, George uh, Gascone. And I hope that we are able to see you, sir, uh, so that we can, you know, uh, have a conversation with you. Uh, Mr. Gascone, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Uh, I'm here, Pastor. There he is. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There we, we can are. see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. Yeah. My pleasure. Say hi, say 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 hi to your wife. We we did have, have her on the screen there first, yeah, and now we to you. So. And that's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> yeah. She was saying hi back. I got an older computer. Okay. And we were having problems. I'm using hers, and that's why the, we had to reset the uh, the uh, Zoom that's... account. But first of all, thank you so much, Pastor and 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 Linda. Thank you for your support and for uh, so eloquently laying out what the DA does. And Gilbert, thank you for your work, especially discussing uh, legislation, Prop 36, Prop 47. Actually, 
as you well know, I was one of the co-authors of Prop 47, mm -hmm. and I also was one of the spokesperson for Prop 36. Uh, so we go back. This is a fight that's been going on for a decade, brother, and we got to continue forward. Mm -hmm. But I think what Linda said is really important because the DA has so much discretion that even when you have really good policies in the book, like Prop 47 or Prop 36, the DA decides to go in a different direction. He or she can actually sabotage this work. So I'll give you a perfect example. With Prop 36, which was a reform of three strikes, and it was really a modest step, but basically it said, if we're going to send somebody to prison for 25 years to life, that last strike has to be serious and violent. And as Gilbert indicated, we have folks that had gone there for a low-level drug possession case, and they were doing 25 years to life. We actually have people that had gone into a store and shoplifted a loaf of bread. And I, and I happen to know some of those examples. And because before Prop 47, that was a that was a that was a second degree burglary. We have people doing prison time, 25 years to life for those kind of sentences. But here's where the DA really plays a role. For instance, when I was a DA in San Francisco, as soon as Prop 36 passed, within less than a month and a half, we had released all the people that qualify under Prop 36 that were doing 25 years to life. In LA County, we're still fighting. There's still people that qualified to have been released in 2012 eight years ago, that the LA County DA continues to hold on Prop 36 charges. And why do I know this? I know this because I know lawyers that are working in the space with the Stanford Law Clinic, which are the people that I work with on Prop 36, and they're still fighting this fight. So even though the voters overwhelmingly said, we want to make sure that if you're going to life, if you're going to prison for life, basically, that that has to be because of something really serious. In LA County, we still got people eight years later still being held back. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it is critically important that we understand that the DA has so much, so much discretion. And obviously, if in addition to discretion, you have a DA that is willing to work for holistic reform, you know, creating legislation, creating policies, you know, shutting down uh, our jails, you know, like, you know, I was the first elected official, actually, I was a a DA in San Francisco over two years ago when I was the first elected official to endorse the reform LA jail platform because I said we don't need another jail in LA just like I was instrumental in stop building a new jail in San Francisco uh, in 2016. Mm -hmm. So this race is really a historic race and what I'd like to I'd like to boil it down to maybe just a few key points because I think it's important for the audience here to grasp mm -hmm. the enormity of this race. Let's take the death penalty as one point. LA County under the current DA has put more people in death row than several Southern states. We're talking about Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama. We have put more people in death row, even though the voters of LA County have voted down the death penalty twice in the last few years. And when they ask the current DA, she says, well, I'm following the voters will. Well, you're certainly not following LA County voters will. Okay, mm -hmm. let's take incarcerating children as adults. LA County leads the way in putting children in adult prison, often wrongfully convicted. In fact, we just had a young man from Compton that is being released this week. He went into adult prison for a 40 year sentence at age 15 for a murder that he did not commit. We got people like 
you know, Frankie Carrillo, who went to prison and was in prison for 20 years for a murder he did not commit at age 16. But LA County continues to do this. So hmm. stopping the death penalty, stopping sending children to adult prison, which by the way, all the science now tells us that our, the human brain is not fully developed until, you, until you're in mid-20s. Mm-hmm. Let's move up to cash bail. About 50% of the people that are in county jail today are they because they cannot afford to post a bail bond. And you know what that really means? They're there because they're poor. They're not there because they're dangerous. Because the system is saying, if you could put five or $10,000, we'll let you out. Well, I would hope that if we believe you're that dangerous, that we are not going to let you out with five or $10,000, right? So what we're saying is, no, we're going to hold you back because you're poor. Well, the district attorney can actually say, I'm not going to use cash bail anymore. I'm mm-hmm. going to stop using cash bail for this low-level offenses, for this nonviolent offenses, regardless of what anybody else says, right? Mm-hmm. Let's move to mental health. 50%, 47% of the people are county jail, as you indicated, Gilbert and Linda, they're people that are mentally ill. And we know that a concrete box does not fix mental health, just like it wouldn't fix cancer, right? But we continue to incarcerate the mentally ill. And we have a DA that goes around and says, oh, I'm the mental health DA. But we know that her deputies are given direction every day in court to oppose mental health aversion. Right. So these are just a few of the things right. mm-hmm. that can be turned over on a dime. Then police accountability. You know, we have had now, I believe it's 609 police killings in the county during the current DA's Six, 619. Mm-hmm. 619. Mm-hmm. One prosecution. One of the things that I've committed, I've already started a civil right, a group of civil rights lawyers that are looking at some of these cases to evaluate what cases could be uh, looked for a, a potential prosecution. And I have pledged already to create a special prosecutors outside the office to do that because I know that many members of the community do not believe that the DA can do this work. And I understand why the, 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 the lack of trust. So moving forward in that direction. So I can go on and on and on, but I think it would be more useful perhaps now to have a dialogue with yeah. you guys, Linda Gilbert and, and, and Pastor Saul. Yeah, th- uh, but this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. Right. Thank you so much for that. I mean, I, I want to pick up the last point that you uh, uh, made, you know, around the 619 killings, you know, of our people by police, you know, uh, in L.A. County. Most recently, you know, uh, Dijon Kesey and both Gilbert and I were there yesterday in front of the sheriff's, you know, uh, station in, you know, uh, South L.A. with Black Lives Matter saying his name. Uh, and demanding, you know, uh, justice, you know, uh, for, you know, him being stopped for a bicycle violation, a bicycle violation. So based on what you just said, uh, do you plan to reopen any of the cases uh, and file charges against officers, you know, uh, uh, and and can you be specific around that? Yeah, so here's what I want to do, because uh, just so that... um the, you know, everybody in the community understands also, if I prejudge a case, mm-hmm. then I open myself to be conflicted out of the case and not being able in the case, they would not be able to handle the case. So what I am committed to is I've already assembled a group of civil rights attorneys that are looking at a lot of these cases, and they are going to determine what are the cases that should be reviewed again. And if they determine that these cases are cases that should be moved forward with the prosecution, then I will appoint a special prosecutor Mm -hmm. to actually prosecute the case. And that would be someone outside the office, somebody has experience 
in doing civil rights work in complex murder litigation. So I cannot say specifically any cases because uh, number one, I need to make sure that I review it all. But secondly, I wanna make sure that I do not uh, get conflicted out of any of these cases. Um, but what I am committed to is a, is a second look by an independent body of civil rights lawyers that will assess uh, what cases should be uh, reviewed for potential prosecution. Great. You know, in, in uh, L.A. City, in L.A. County, we have been afflicted by pay for play. And uh, that runs through, you know, a city all straight up into the Board of Supervisors. Uh, and, 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 and you and I know uh, that, uh, you know, the current district attorney, Jackie Lacey, has endless money uh, because she's backed by the police associations, you know, uh, which have already spent millions, you know, to re-elect her. How will you overcome that? And uh, you want to say a little bit about your path to victory? No, of course. So uh, you're absolutely right. So police unions uh, gave uh, Lacey about $2.1 million in the primary. Uh, there were mostly attacks against me. They were not mm -hmm. even talking nicely about her. They were just attacking me. Mm -hmm. uh, and now they have pledged another 4 to $5 million. So this actually will be the most expensive race in the history, uh, the most expensive DA's race in the history of the state and possibly by the time we're done uh, in the history of the nation. Uh, so the path to winning is a grassroots path, right? Mm -hmm. Is you know, having people like Linda and Gilbert and many other folks that, that view, um, that they have the same vision and being able to communicate this quite frankly, outside of our color community, right? We're gonna need uh, people in, in, in middle-class communities, white folks to understand why this is not only important for black and brown folks, but why this is also important for white folks, right? And this is a dangerous time in our nation, right? And because we have a dialogue that is beginning to take place that the current DA, by the way, she's embracing a dialogue of fear, right? We have somebody running for the White House uh, that is talking about how he is the law and order candidate, right? Which is code word for, I am the one that is gonna protect white people from black and brown people. It's a very racist message and it's very codified. And this has been tried before. And the current DA is doing the same thing. In fact, I will give you a perfect example of what she's doing. I have a policy team that is very diverse and very diverse across the spectrum, color, gender, political ideology. And there are two women that I consider uh, friends and, and people that are extremely smart. Uh, they, they happen to be black women and they happen to be black mothers, right? And when uh, the George Floyd incident happened, one of them in frustration, as I think any mother would, she just had a, an emotional outburst and said, we need to burn the system down and start all over again, right? And then another one, in looking at a group of LAPD officers actually brutalizing a, a, a group of, of uh, peaceful demonstrators by City Hall, she says, look at this, um, she called them, uh, uh, I forgot what she called them, you know, Neanderthals or some other term, uh, barbarians. Mm -hmm. and, and that was picked up by the local, D, the current DA and she gave it to Fox News and Fox News and then the Fox News National uh, a guy by the name of Tucker took it up. And she, meaning Lacey, immediately demanded that I need to be accountable for that. And that should maybe, 
uh, you know, stay my position vis-a-vis -vis where these women are. And I tell you what, you know, I have people say, oh, you, you have to move them out of your policy team. And I say, I'm not going to do that. You know why? This women have a right to be angry. And I, look, I am someone that has been in the business of keeping people safe and communities my entire life. Obviously, I do not condone violence from any side, from the left or the right. But I also understand the frustration. And for me to say that a black mother cannot be frustrated because she's worried about what is she going to tell her her son, mm -hmm. you know, about how he has to behave in order not to get killed by police, it's a state of affairs that I find completely immoral and unacceptable. And I refuse to condemn these women for that emotional outburst. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is a conversation that the current DA, which by the way, then she goes on to a debate and she says, I'm a black mother or two. And I'm saying, you are the most hypocritical person that I've ever seen. Yes, you're a black mother or two, but your actions and everything that you have done for the last seven years is actually making other black mothers fear mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the life of their kids. Yeah. And I think we have to understand as we are on our path to victory here, that we have to educate people and understand that this is not a black versus white or a brown and black versus white. This is all of us need to be together because the white community gets just as impacted by these problems as the black and brown community. The impact may be different, but nevertheless, they are impacted. Yeah. And I think it's going to be critical for us to educate people in the white community as to why this matters to them, too. You know, mm -hmm. I tell people, I've had people talk, talk to me and say, well, you know, all life matters. And they said, look, I agree with you that all life matters, but for all life to matter, black lives have to matter. Mm -hmm. And they don't sometimes, right? So when we when people talk about black life matters, it's yeah, because absolutely all life matters, but in many cases, black life don't seem to matter today. Yeah. He has to stop that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we need to be forceful about how we create coalitions that are broader than just simply black and brown sisters and brothers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, uh, certainly we organize to humanize because the first um, 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 tragedy of white supremacy is that people lose their humanity, including white people. So we just have to be clear about that. Uh, you are an intersection, you know, in so many ways, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, around, you know, having an immigrant experience, uh, you've worked with, you know, you've been in Arizona, you know, where you've been with the notorious El Payo and, and, and dealing with uh, him over there. And then, of course, in, you know, uh, one of my favorite cities, you know, in the United States, San Francisco, where I happen to have been, uh, you know, um, a pastor for three years, 1996 to 1999. Um, and, and, of course, you know, uh, being a, a, a former police officer, I mean, you are an intersection of all of that. Community coalition has always worked uh, around, you know, um, the, uh, um, um, the the the, the re-envisioning, you know, of a uh, um, a racial injustice system, and the repurposing, you know, uh, of resources that support that, you know, uh, and move that into resources to facilitate um, uh, racial justice, you know. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, how 
will this intersectional experience that you have, you know, uh, come alongside the work that we continue to do to see how we can, you know, uh, defund, you know, a, a racial uh, repressive and, you know, uh, an oppressive, you know, a system that we're dealing with, you know, here in, you know, uh, LA County. No, absolutely. And, you know, for, for folks that don't know me, I, you know, my family immigrated to Cattahay, which for, again, a lot of people don't know where Cattahay is, a little town in the southeast part of LA County. It's right between Southgate and Airport. Uh, you know, I grew up in a one bedroom apartment and I actually slept. I tell people that the living room was my bedroom at night time and it was everybody's room in the daytime because I slept on the couch. Uh, I dropped out of high school. Um, you know, I was a, a, a monolingual Spanish speaker at the time. I wound up going to the U.S. Army, and that was sort of the, the, the path for me that, you know, sort of strained me up, if you will, gave me an opportunity to get a high school diploma. Then I went to Cal State Long Beach, where I got a degree in history. And from there, I joined the LAPD, and I went through the ranks to become number two. Uh, but I tell people that, you know, I was someone that was in the system, and I evolved in the system, right? And I went from being part of the system to believe that the system needed to be reformed to reaching a conclusion that actually the system is not reformable because the system is actually doing what it was assigned to do, right? And, and really took for that, for me to come to that conclusion, took some edu self-educating about the origins of the criminal justice system in policing in, in, in America. And it's deeply embedded in the experience of slavery. Uh, you know, police uh, and, you know, the, the early stages of policing in this country were created to make sure the slaves were, were, you know, returned when they ran away. And then after the Civil War, during the Jim Crow era, you had, you know, the system then evolve to create a, a series of laws and creating enabling legislation for policing then to continue to, you know, de facto enslave black people in the South and many other parts of the country. And then you continue that evolution until we get into the 1980s and the war on drugs. And that was kind of another another iteration, if you will, of you know continuing the same uh, enslaving form of government. So I, you know, I'm a strong believer that that we actually have to reimagine the system. And that's not to say that we will not have police. As the question becomes, what should the size of the police and what should the size of prosecution be? That needs to be substantially less. And that you know, Prop 47 actually was. Um, a beginning of that conversation. You know, Prop 47 actually took $500 million a year away from the prison system and put it back into communities, as Gilbert said, uh, for, for services around mental health and education and social services. And that was, in my opinion, really a down payment uh, that needs to continue. And obviously we're seeing that work in LA County to take uh, you know, roughly about 10% of the budget, uh, which I support, uh, but I only... Uh, hope that that is not, that's only the, the floor, not the ceiling, because I think we need to continue to have these conversations as to how do we reduce the footprint of, of, of policing prosecutions and prisons and put that into education and put that into other places that are going to yield more Policing, getting into Arizona and, and having to encounter Joe Arpaio, one of the most xenophobic, one of the most racist public officials in the modern history of this country that actually made a political living out of, out of uh, abusing 
uh, immigrants and going to Congress, being the one of the, the three people that originally went to the Justice Department and launched a formal complaint that led to his prosecution, going to Congress, testifying about the problems, being thrown out of Mesa, you know, luckily being recruited by Gavin Newsom, who was then mayor in San Francisco, becoming the chief of police there, uh, working with Kamala Harris when she became IG, taking her place and then continuing that path of reform as a prosecutor. And every one of the stops has informed where I am today in my own personal evolution. And that's why I've come to the conclusion as we did in San Francisco that we lower incarceration substantially, but yeah, our violent crime continues to go down, which interestingly enough, by the way, you hear police unions talk about um, the current DA here and how she's a law and order DA and I'm not, but you know, violent crime in LA County has gone up by nearly 30%. And mm -hmm. yet she incarcerates at four times the level that we did in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So if incarceration was the currency of safety, then LA County would be the safest county in the world. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. So we need to have those conversations. And Pastor, it's, it's been my evolution, learning, traveling this journey and understanding what works and what doesn't work that's gotten to where I am today. Great. Mr. George Cascone, thank you so much for joining us. I know uh, we have you know, uh, uh, several weeks to get to November the 3rd. Hopefully we'll have another conversation with you. Uh, uh, we want to, of course, say that, you know, uh, skinship doesn't mean kinship. Uh, and, you know, I'm part of the Black Women for Wellness, you know, uh, uh, action uh, committee. And we certainly endorsed you, you know, uh, because, you know, uh, of the uh, 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 disastrous results uh, that we have seen, you know, around uh, both the politics of fear uh, that uh, emanates from uh, the uh, office of the district, the current district attorney, uh, and the movement, you know, for uh, reimagination, uh, which has taken place. And, and and as you can see, you will be coming into a um, a polis, you know, um, a community that. Uh, it, uh, has activated grassroots, you know, uh, organizing, uh, and has activated, you know, people power for progress uh, around, you know, what needs to happen, you know, uh, 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 in terms of resisting, you know, the, uh, the prison industrial complex as well as the law enforcement industrial complex. Those two are two sides of the same coin, and they go hand in hand. Uh, we are committed to beloved community. Uh, and we hope that uh, as you make your way to November and, uh, and, and, and be victorious, that you will join the movement, you know, to create beloved community uh, characterized you know, by uh, racial uh, equity and racial justice. Because in the end, uh, we organize to humanize. So thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Our prayers are with you. Uh, I want to thank uh, Gilbert uh, and Linda for joining you know, me and for uh, working with me to prepare for the show, uh, for all those who sent me questions. Uh, uh, we didn't get to all of them, but we'll work uh, hopefully another a conversation in uh, with Mr. Gascone because, again, as we said, the implications of this race uh, is just, you know, uh, so significant. Thanks so much for joining us. Really yeah. appreciate it. Stay cool, stay safe, and uh, we really uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, 
Faith Without Borders, uh, yes, that was part four of uh, our 10-part series around inter intersectionality and convergence, you know, around uh, organizing and mobilizing for equity, equality, you know, and inclusivity. We're so glad that you uh, join us. We want to quickly lift up, you know, uh, some upcoming, you know, uh, pieces. Uh, please, 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 uh, you need to count. Uh, the census is critical. Uh, and uh, the end, um, the deadline for census is the end of this month, the month of September. Uh, and we are out in full force uh, uh, educating and mobilizing, you know, uh, folk uh, for that. There is a webinar this Friday uh, coming up that uh, Community Coalition and several other organizations, you know, are, are pulling together. Uh, I have the privilege of being a part of that. It's going to take place this Friday at 5 you know, uh, 30. Um, I think we have a flyer for that. There it is. So uh, join us uh, if you have more questions, but it's all part about, it's all about mobilizing and educating and organizing. We've got to make sure that you are in the count, people. You count. Uh, and then because you count, you got to vote. This is a voting season, not a voting day. All right. It is a voting season and uh, ballots has already gone out. Uh, so we're inviting folk to, uh, to do what they need to do uh, as we continue to walk and work together. Thank you so much for joining us. We're closing out you know, uh, today with a, uh, a song video by B.B. Winans uh, talking about the right to live, Black Lives Matter. This is the song that he sang at the 57th uh, commemoration of the March on Washington that took place last Friday. Uh, and so, you know, uh, yes, B.B. Uh, Winans singing um, um, around Black Lives Matter and the right to, to live. Peace out. Much love. His eyes looking back at me With that smile His possibilities And our plans Don't take away from me with your hands at night.